Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. How many times a day do you hear or read something opining on what's wrong with America and American politics? As is too often the case, we love to look for the simple solutions, the one answer that will explain it all, the unified field theory of American politics. But unlike physics, the answer to understanding politics, the business of the interaction of people, is more nuanced, more complex, and more like evolution than physics, and therefore takes place over a long time. Layer upon layer of behavior, decisions, and leaders have led us to where we are today, to a politics not just of polarization, but of pure primal tribalism. My guest, longtime journalist Michael Tomaski, tries to peel back the layers in his new book, if we can keep it. Michael Tabaski is a columnist for the Daily Beast, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Tabaski here to talk about If We Can Keep It, how the Republic collapsed and how it might be saved. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. One of the things you point out is that the idea of political polarization and, and strong differences between people and, and ideologies is nothing new as, as a fundamental principle. And, and, and we kind of need to use that as a starting point and then take a look at how it's changed with respect to the kind of polarization and tribalism we see today. Yeah, quite true. Um, <clears throat> in the early chapters of the book, I discussed that. And, uh, uh, you know, our differences go back to the very, very beginning very beginning of the Republic. And um, uh, if you read uh, about the, for example, the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians of the 1790s, uh, you'll read some uh, debates that sound awfully similar. The Hamilton people were the city people, the city slickers from the coasts, the elitists, uh, the wine drinkers, if you will. The Jeffersonians were the backwoods people, the yeoman farmers. Uh, the country folk, uh, and uh, they fought about the same thing we fight about today, the size and scope and power of the federal government. Uh, so it's in our DNA and has been for, for 250 years. Is there anything different about the polarization today as opposed to other historical periods? There is, and uh, this is one of the central points of the book that, as you say, I try to unfold over the course of the uh, of telling the story, throughout our history, uh, our political parties grew up in a very strange way. We never had, uh, uh, well, uh, I shouldn't say never, but for the most part, we did not have in this country, historically, a party of the broad left and a party of the broad right. Uh, the Democratic Party, going back to the 19th century, which of course is our left party today, um, uh, was not that, was anything but that. I mean, it was the party of, it, it had anti-slavery people in the North, but it had pro-slavery people. Then after the Civil War, the Democratic Party was the Southern pro-slavery, you know, uh, apartheid party, essentially. And in the North, the Democratic Party was the party of the urban machines, like Boss Tweed and things like that. It was only uh, beginning in the early part of the 20th century, and then, of course, to Roosevelt, that it started to become a liberal party. And yet, and yet, Jeff, it still had a lot of those Southern conservatives, as, it, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know. Now, the Republican Party was also a kind of amalgam. Uh, 
Uh, it started out as the abolitionist party uh, when it was the party of Lincoln, but then it became after Lincoln's assassination and, and once the industrial revolution hit, the Republican party became the party of wall street and the party of the, of the capitalists. Uh, yet out in a different part of the country, uh, in the agrarian Midwest, the Republican party was like the agrarian populist party. So, uh, I go on about this in more detail in the book, but that, but that's enough for 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 the for present purposes. The point is, our parties were these strange, strange amalgams that that grew from our strange history and the way the country grew and expanded over the course of the 19th century. There was a lot of overlap in those two parties. A lot of overlap in those two parties. Then what happened and what produced our particular form of polarization today? is that starting in the 1960s with civil rights and continuing into the 70s and 80s, that overlap disappeared, and our parties became these two warring factions, and we finally had, uh, you know, 200 years after the Republic was created, we finally had ideologically coherent political parties, and, uh, you know, in a way that makes more sense, but it's created more polarization and, and uh, dysfunction. Right. As you talk about th- that there was overlap, you could make in those days a Venn diagram of the parties and find lots of places where there was overlap. That's become less true. What was, as, as you see it, the tipping point that really led us to, to the kind of division, to the kind of ideological purity within the parties that you're talking about? Yeah, I don't think there was any single tipping point, but broadly speaking, there were there were two historical factors that produced the change. The first was economic in the 1970s. Um, you know, the the troubles of the 70s, the the great inflation uh, and wage stagnation, deindustrialization of a lot of the northern states. Um, you know, uh, this country from 1945 to 1975 sailed along pretty nicely not for everybody obviously not for african americans not 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 uh, not for women who a lot of time you know couldn't get into the workplace in anywhere near a weak, equal way but in general terms we had prosperity we had growth we had wages growing we had high unionization uh, uh economic times were good then that ended in the 1970s and anytime economic times get less good that creates a lot of tension Happening at the same time was this growth of of controversial issues, um, social issues, cultural issues. We call them. Uh, abortion became an issue. Abortion had never been an issue. You know, President Kennedy never had to take a position on abortion. Uh, so that those kinds of issues became divisive. Of course, race and civil rights. Uh, there was a, again, there was a bipartisan consensus to pass civil rights and voting rights in 1964 and 65, but then that consensus became fractured over the late 60s and early 70s. Immigration was another issue. So I think those two things, both happening at the same time, uh, really started things off. Then I'll I'll add quickly a third point. Uh, In the 1970s, the conservative movement really got its boots on and really became a thing, a big 
well-financed, well-oiled machine in a way it never had been before. There were always conservatives, of course. William Buckley started the National Review magazine in the 50s, and it had readers and it had adherents. Uh, there were always conservatives. They just didn't have money and organization until the 1970s and 80s. One of the things that you talk about is the period in the 70s where the economic forces that were at play, particularly the inflation that came along, was a critical factor in this divide. Talk a little about that. Yeah, it really it really changed the country and I, I think changed who, who we are, uh, we were as a people. As I said a moment ago, the, the uh, economic times in this country were broadly very good in the post-war period. Um, we, were, we had very low levels of inequality and very high levels of growth. Uh, and uh, inflation had never been a serious thing in, in post-war United States. And then for a range of reasons, some of them having to do with monetary policy, some of them having to do with uh, the cost of the Vietnam War, um, inflation started to assert itself. And uh, I'm sure your listeners may know that the, the desired goal today for inflation, uh, according to the Federal Reserve Bank, is 2% a year. So some of the inflation figures of the 70s uh, were 5%, 5.5%, 7%, 9%, 11% one year. Um, and it really, it really changed the country. It really changed our economic situation. And, you know, it changed the way we thought about our personal finances and for fortunes and our relationships, I think, even to our neighbors. And, uh, and it made us more consumerist. Uh, and then the 80s came along, and, of course, there was this celebration of wealth in the 80s, the celebration of these Wall Street titans and these great fortunes and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so we became, uh, as I put it in the book, more consumers and less citizens. And that, too, I think, contributed to the creation of a, you know, a two-tiered society, economically two-tiered society, that also contributed to the problem that we see today. Not to put too sharp an ideological point on it, it does seem that more of the changes took place on the right. I mean, when we talk about the divide between the parties and the ideological purity, we can go back to, you know, Barry Goldwater's speech talking about extremism and the defense of liberty in 1964 and, and find the direct line from that to Reagan to Newt Gingrich, who you also talk about in, in, in the 70s and 80s. There, there is this through line on the right that seems to be a larger contributing factor to this divide. Uh, I believe so, and um, you know, political scientists have, have documented it and measured it in various ways, uh, so it's not just made up. Um, <clears throat> as I said, you know, they became a very organized political machine in the 1970s. They created think tanks, they created all these organizations, uh, you know, institutes for young people uh, to get their political educations and so forth. Uh, and these things were very political in a way that existing liberal institutions like the Ford Foundation and the Brookings Institution 
just weren't quite. They, they, they didn't really think of themselves as capital P political, whereas the conservative institutions did because the conservative institutions were trying to change the world. They were trying to change people's assumptions. They were trying to change the way Americans thought about politics and economics and social policy and everything. So they were more aggressive in the way they went about doing that and making their arguments. Uh, and then when it transferred into politics, uh, the conservatives and Republicans took some steps um, that the Democrats just didn't take. And one of the crucial ones that I write about in the book that a lot of people, I think, don't know that much about is the no-tax pledge that most uh, Republicans in Congress, in the Senate and the House take, uh, are compelled to take by this group called Americans for Tax Reform. So no Republican really has voted for a tax increase, a major tax increase of any kind, since 1990. I think most people don't know that, and I think they'd be astonished to know that, because, you know, if you think of Congress negotiating, well... A normal negotiation is you give a little here, you give a little there. You, you offer some spending cuts, you get a tax increase in return, and you meet halfway in the middle. That's what they used to do. That's what Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill did to save Social Security in 1983. But since 1990, tax increases have been absolutely off the table. And that's entirely the doing of the conservative movement and the Republican Party. So, yeah, they've done more. The Democrats aren't blameless, of course. I mean, they, they, they play this game, too. But, um, but the Republicans have, have done more to uh, heighten polarization. And, and why have they been, why have people like Grover Norquist and even Gingrich, to a certain extent, been so successful in making that case, in your view? Well... Norquist, I, you know, I have to give him credit in a way. I mean, right. he came up with this idea of this pledge. Now, people don't have to sign it. You know, they're free not to sign it. But if they don't, he'll just find somebody else who lives in that congressional district who'll sign it. <laughs> uh, and so that brings us to another important point. There is, again, there's a well-financed machinery on the right whose counterpart does not exist on the left to kind of keep these people in line in Congress and keep them voting the party line. So I tell this story that Barney Frank told uh, in the book. Barney Frank was interviewed as he was leaving Congress, um, what, maybe six, seven years ago that was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the person was asking him about polarization and dysfunction, and, and Barney Frank says, yeah, my constituents ask me this question all the time. Why can't we get along? I look at them and I say, how much compromising with Michelle Bachman would you have me do? And then his constituents look at him and they say, you mean they're all Michelle Bachman? And he says, no, half of them are Michelle Bachman. The other half are terrified of getting a primary challenge from someone like Michelle Bachman. Mm -hmm. And that is really very true. And I've talked about this with other politicians, both parties, operatives of both parties. And yeah, if you're a Republican House member from one of these typical districts, these heavily gerrymandered districts, where they don't even have to worry about getting Democratic or independent votes, where all they have to do is maximize the Republican turnout. If they voted while Obama was president, you know, for an Obama uh, budget or tax package or judge or what have you, they're guaranteed a primary. 
and guaranteed a well-financed primary. Uh, and that is a big, big part of the problem. Now, you know, that kind of machinery just, as I said, does not exist on the Democratic left side. You, you hear now some people like uh, Ocasio-Cortez uh, talking about forcing primaries against some moderate Democrats. Um, but, you know, they don't, they don't have the money I don't, uh, and anywhere near the way the right has the money to, to scare people. That is the other factor in all of this that we haven't talked about yet, which is the amount of money that is washing through the political system. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's gone absolutely crazy uh, since the 1980s. Uh, and, uh, of course, it's just getting worse and worse, and, and I think the Supreme Court is going to make it worse and worse still. Um, everyone knows about the Citizens United decision, but you know the part of campaign finance law that does still exist, that the Supreme Court upheld in that and other decisions, was the limit on contributions. So no matter how rich you are, you can still only contribute... I think it's still $2,300 to an individual candidate per election cycle. Uh, there's reason to believe that the Supreme Court is going to do away with that someday. And if we hit that point, then you know Charles Koch can just you know, buy every congressman he wants. And yet you are somewhat optimistic. I mean, you have this 14-point plan... At, at the end of the book, you're somewhat optimistic that there is a way out of this. Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I uh, I have this. You have to you have to give people some hope if you're going to write a book <laughs> like this. You can't just right? you can't just say it, forget about it. Uh, it's all bleak. Um, so I try to do that. And uh, I try my best, and I say in this last chapter, I say, look, you know, some of these things, at least in the current political context, frankly, are pie in the sky, and some of them are, you know, hopeful things that, you know, it's going to take a generation or two. I mean, it's, it's taken a long time to create this problem. It's going to take a long time to get out of it, if we even can. But yes, so stipulating all that, I present my ideas, in which in some of them... Uh, are about the political system, and, and some of them bring in other factors uh, that move beyond the realm of politics, because it's, uh, as I try to say at various points in the book, this isn't just a political problem, this isn't just a Washington problem, it's, it's also a problem that, you know, exists in us, and in our cities and towns and communities, and there are some things that we could maybe do along those lines, too. It's interesting that some of the solutions have the potential. I mean, gerryman- ending gerrymandering is, is, is sort of one where there are some states, California perhaps being the penultimate example, that are trying to address this, even though it's not being addressed on, on a national level at all. Yeah. Uh, I was heartened by the number of states last fall, last November, that passed, um, um, you know, redistricting commissions, the establishment of independent redistricting commissions. Uh, California is one of several. I think that, you know, they're now. I think it's now in the double digits. The number of states 
that have these commissions. And, you know, they're not going to be perfect, but they'll be better. You know, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll do a somewhat more fair job uh, of drawing lines, uh, certainly than the kinds of lines we've seen drawn in some of these states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and North Carolina. And on the Democratic side, Maryland, I live in Maryland, and, and the Democrats did it in Maryland. Uh, but Republicans have done it in more states. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a big one. Uh, here again, though, I mean, the, the Supreme Court's going to be a problem because I think the Supreme Court is going to say legislatures can redistrict until the cows come home, and we see nothing in the Constitution to prevent it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that's another layer to this is the way in which some of this, on, on, on both sides is filtering down to state politics. I mean, it's it's interesting that the Republicans have always been the great arguers for states' rights. That seems to be reversing now, and, and Democrats are looking more to solve some of their problems on a state level. Yeah, yes, they're trying to, and I, you know, California is the prime example of that right. again with some of the moves that Governor Brown made uh, to try and counter uh, Trump uh, administration policies that were coming out of Washington. Uh, it's a different place for Democrats to be sort of psychically because, you know, Democrats look to Washington typically and liberals. And so now they're looking to a kind of a, oh, a, a new federalism, uh, I guess uh, some have called it, uh, to allow states more leeway. Uh, at the same time, you know, the conservatives are very, very organized in a lot of states. Uh, and they have this organization, for example, called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which sets up offices, lobbying groups, and and such in uh, in many state capitals. And uh, again, they just have a lot more money than the left side does, and uh, and they're way ahead in terms of influencing policy. Not in California, obviously, and not in a number of very blue states, but you know, in a large number of red and purple states. Um, they're doing in the state capitals what they're doing in Washington. Yeah, Donald Rumsfeld used to have a saying that, that always got a lot of laughter when he said it, that sometimes the solution to an intractable problem was to create a larger problem. Are we seeing in the current administration a larger problem now that might be a way in to solve some of these things? Maybe. <laughs> what is this larger problem you have in mind? Uh, Donald Trump is the larger problem. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, well, it could be. I mean, you know, you see these never-Trump Republicans, David Frum and Bill Kristol and, and Jennifer Rubin and people like this. Uh, and that's all good. Um, but... I don't know. Are they becoming so alienated from their party that they're willing to back a Democratic president? I don't know about that. I mean, they, many of them said explicitly last fall, vote for the Democrats, vote for the Democrats, put the Democrats in the House so the Democrats can be a counterweight to Trump. They'll go that far. Um, I don't know if they'll go so far as to sort of support a Democratic 
president. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess the question then becomes who that Democrat is. And, and with the Democrats moving further to the left, arguably, it makes it more difficult for those people. It does. It does. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know what the immediate future holds. I mean, uh, you know, if Trump wins again, I mean, obviously that's just more mayhem and uh, and more division. I mean, he he stokes division like nobody else. Uh, if a Democrat beats him, uh, you know, I think we're still we're still stuck for a little while. Um, it's going to be hard for the Democrats to win the Senate, so I think it's probably going to be a Republican Senate. Maybe the Democrats can probably hold the House. So again, it'll be it'll be divided government. Um, but you know, what can change things? And this is one of the notes that I sort of conclude the book on: is that if economic times get better, and if we can return to a general economic prosperity, and I don't think things are ever going to be like they were in the 60s when we ha- were having year in, year out, 4 and 5 and 6% growth. I don't think that's in the cards. But if we can get to something like a broader economic prosperity where smaller towns and rural areas and the left-behind places are again seeing opportunity where they live, if we can get to that, some of the tension will reduce. Some of the anger and hatred of immigrants and and all that stuff will reduce and I think become manageable. But, you know, so that's what we need, a little bit of general economic prosperity. But doing that is going to be pretty hard because, you know, the Democrats will try to do something about middle-income wages, and the Republicans will be against everything they try to do. Of course, uh, the, the other overlay to this is that we have this division taking place, and Trump stirring up this division, as you talked about, at a time right now when just on a cyclical basis we're going into tougher economic times, arguably. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's how it looks. A lot of people, economists, smell a recession coming. Um, and yeah, you know, nobody. I'm not cheering for a recession, but it might be a kind of a blessing in that it might make it more likely uh, to elect a Democrat and and to elect uh, a dem- Democratic majorities that can do some of these things, like um, you know a, a minimum wage that will keep pace with inflation and uh, expanding health care and you know some of the other things that that I believe need to be done to spread prosperity and reduce inequality. Michael Tomaski, his book is If We Can Keep It, How the Republic Collapsed and How It Might Be Saved. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I thank you for giving me the platform. I enjoyed it. Thank you.